wife, yes I am. Well, uh, good evening ladies and gentlemen, great to see such a, an excellent turnout uh, for our talk this evening on the, the V-bombers, obviously a subject that's uh, sparked a lot of interest. Uh, just going to say hello to people online, we've actually broke records this evening, we've got over 200 here in the room and we've got 200 online as well, so we've never really gone over 400 before, so uh, a record-breaking turnout, so that's terrific. A uh, quick mention of Brooklyn's members, uh, you see our colleagues at the back there, you, if you're not already a Brooklyn's member, there are lots of events coming up and lots of benefits of membership, so it would be great if you uh, joined uh, this evening, or if you're online, of course, you can do that very easily by just uh, clicking a few clicks, and there you go. Now, those of you who are regulars will know that this room does get pretty hot, so we've left those doors open and we've left those windows open, so the guys that are sitting beside those windows are probably going to be too cold, <laughs> but... They, they will sacrifice that for their, everybody else um, and uh, they, they, they will put up with that so there's a little bit of a breeze coming through and the rest of you can stay at a sort of a, a tolerable um, temperature. I um, also just want to welcome John Graham uh, who also was a V-bomber crew and also Jim Uprichard who was not on Vulcans but was on, I think, what, 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 what aircraft was it? Victor. The, the Victor. So we've got uh, other V-bomber crew uh, in the... Uh, the uh, audience um, this evening. Um, yeah, I remember being at Goodwood a few years ago, uh, pre-Shoreham disaster obviously, and uh, the Vulcan was due over and we were standing on the Lavant Bank and everything went a little bit quiet and we heard something and we looked up and the Vulcan just flew in right over our heads at like kind of zero feet. Absolutely incredible. What an amazing aircraft. And here to tell you a lot more about it, please give a big Brooklyn's welcome to Andy Richardson. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, I hope you can all hear me at the back. And it's wonderful to see such an incredible audience. There's no pressure on me. And the fact that you're all professionals in this. You know, normally I give this to Women's Institute, Probus Groups, U3A. And, uh, you know, so there's no question. I can even tell fibs and lies, but I'm not going to get away with it here. The spiritual home of aviation, the home of Vickers. It's a great honor for me to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. The secondary title that I've given this is The Ultimate Peacekeepers, um, which I think is a more appropriate than V-bombers. There are three V-bombers which we're going to hear about, but um, they were never designed with the aim of going to war as a first strike. They were only designed as a deterrent. And V-bomber crews, air crew and ground crew, we always refer to it as the deterrent rather than the bomber force. It was the deterrent force. So here we go, the story about the ultimate peacekeepers, peacekeepers. So where did it start? Well, really it started with the end of the Lancaster. And the Second World War ended, the Lancaster had been uh, built specifically for the war effort. Without the Lancaster, the war wouldn't have been won. The same can be said with the Spitfire, the Hurricane, uh, Mosquitoes. You know, every one of the aircraft that was designed uh, for the war played a part. Certainly you can say as far as the Lancaster was concerned, without it the war would not have been won. However, just at the end of the war, you know, Russia has been an ally during the war, uh, but it's now a threat. No, things don't change much, do they? Uh, but it's already past its prime and outdated. And in fact, it's not just the 
aeroplane, the Lancaster, that's outdated, but the whole of the Royal Air Force is outdated. The air crew are tired. We need new. The airfields uh, have been smashed to smithereens, some of them. So there's a massive re-equipment required throughout the whole of the RAF. And the government tasked British industry to build a nuclear deterrent, an airborne nuclear deterrent. And it's British industry that's going to build this, not uh, foreign industry. Quite uniquely, the delivery platform for this deterrent is to be a four-engined aircraft. That's no problem, because the Lancaster was four-engined, but now we're going to have four jet engines, all relatively new. The jet engine did come into service during the war. The RAF had some experience with the Meteor and also with the Canberra, but a four-engined jet bomber was going to be a challenge. But it wasn't a challenge because British industry was still strong. There were masses of companies in the country that could potentially have built these aircraft. About a dozen were invited to tender, uh, and about four or five came up with really credible uh, options, and three actually came up with ones worth shortlisting. And of course, the one in the middle, I'm going to be polite and do your homegrown product here. The Vickers Valiant was built here, designed here, and its big advantage was that Vickers, unlike the other two companies, had already been developing this aircraft on their own nickel. Hopefully, if it had succeeded, it would have gone on to have made a commercial ver version. But here we have the three companies that are uh, going to build it. Three get shortlisted, the uh, Victor, and uh, Jim is uh, in the, he flew these, uh, the Valiant in the uh, center. I don't think anybody here has flown the Valiant or did, but some of you will, I'm sure, have relatives, friends that were involved in its uh, manufacture. And then AV Row came up with the Vulcan design, um, the bottom picture. These three designs were all rather uh, unique in their own ways, uh, but they were so good that the government couldn't decide which one they would select. So the simple answer was to select all three. So all three companies, Handley Page Vickers and AV Row, were given production um, contracts to build these aircraft. Now, why nuclear? Well, remember the bombs that the Americans dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They had a destructive power of 15 kilotons. What that basically means is that it has the equivalent of 15 kilotons of conventional explosives. Britain's first test of an H-bomb in 1952 was for 25 kilotons. But that wasn't enough, strangely. So it was developed at Aldermaston. Something, somebody with a sense of humor, or a, no sense of humor at all, named this weapon Yellow Sun. And that was a 1.5 megaton warhead. Notice how I've changed from kilotons to megatons. So that's just a number, 1.5 megatons. But what is 1.5 megatons? Well, if you added up every single bomb 
dropped by the RAF from all its bomber types during the war, every single one throughout the entire war, you would not have reached 1.5 megatons. So it wasn't surprising that a lot of people didn't like this. But what I do like about this particular picture is the protesters in those days put their Sunday best frocks on and their hats, <laughs> and they did it decently. And I think most people in the V-Force probably knew a family member that also supported the band The Bomb. Now, hopefully during this talk, you're going to see why it was a pretty good thing that we didn't ban it, because it did do a lot of good. That's to be told. So let me just talk briefly about the all three V-bombers, and then I'll spend more time on the Vulcan, which is, of course, the one that I'm more familiar with. So we're going to start off with the Vickers Valiant, and it's built here at uh, Brooklands. And now we've just been in, I believe, call the dining room where we ate the Barnes-Wallace uh, room, or the Barnes-Wallace suites. So he is part of the design team for this incredible aircraft. And 107 of them were built. They were obviously taken over to Wisley, where they were flown and kitted out. Uniquely, this is the only V-bomber of the three that actually dropped a nuclear weapon. So it's got a unique pace, place in history. And it was the first one that came into service. Second aircraft that came along was the Victor. And I said to Jim, from my, even though I'm a Vulcan man, the Victor, I thought, was an incredibly pretty aircraft. It was actually technically rather sophisticated. And 86, it was the smallest production number. They were built by Handley Page. And as I said, it was a pretty aircraft. I'll show a second picture of it, because I think it really is a, a delightful aircraft. And now we go into a little bit of Roman mythology. And it's a clue to the aeroplane that I flew, had the pleasure of flying in. And the Roman god of fire and thunder, what a great time, Married to Venus with the sun Cupid, the Roman god of fire and thunder was, of course, Vulcan. And there is the Avro Vulcan. And I think if this flew over your house today, you would still look, a bit, look up and say, wow, that's a gorgeous aeroplane. You, know, it does, you, does, you just can't understand how old it is until you see the next slides that give it. 136 were made in... Uh, the Avro factory at Woodford, just outside Manchester. So that was the largest production quantity of uh, V-bombers that were made. So what was the whole purpose of this? So just to give you a little flavour of what's to come, let me just show you a quick video clip. After a short walk along tunnels cut through the limestone, the War Cabinet would enter the operations room. It is from here, with Soviet missiles only minutes away, that the Prime Minister would have ordered Alert Condition 1. This called for the annihilation of 30 to 40 Soviet cities, with an assumed casualty figure of at least 16 million. Big cities like Moscow and Leningrad would get two or three H-bombs each.
that's just you'll see uh, some further video of the actual flying of it. But that's uh, the whole purpose of building these airplanes and what they were for. Now you can't talk about the uh, V Force, the V bombers, without mentioning our friendly Americans with the B-52. The B-52 had to do exactly the same task as the uh, three V-bombers were designed for. The big difference, of course, is they have a seven-hour flight time from most of their bases in America uh, before they even reach here, let alone Russia. So quite clearly, they need a lot more fuel. It has to be bigger. So we always joke about everything American being bigger, but this was one reason why it genuinely needed to be bigger, to take that extra fuel, provide that extra range. And I little laugh about this. There are still a few uh, B-52s flying. But if you watch Only Fools and Horses, there's a similarity with Trigger's broomstick. You know, this has been re-engined, re-winged, re-everything, just like his brush had new handles and, and heads on it. Uh, but it's still basically the same design. And here's one shot. So I've only got one shot in the whole uh, the presentation. Uh, and if you're at the back, you're probably not going to see it. But basically, the three V-bombers were roughly the same size, you know, just over 100 feet and a wingspan of about 110, 120 feet. Uh, the weights of the three bombers, the Vulcan was the heavier. Now, when we talk about speeds, there's always going to be an argument between the Victors and the, uh, the Vulcan crews as to which one was the fastest. Uh, so we'll just sort of say they were close to each other. Uh, uh, and the ceiling that isn't without uh, argument is that the Vulcan did have a higher ceiling of 64,000 feet, m much more than the B-52 from America. And the range was all about uh, 4,000, roughly 4,000 nautical miles for the three V-bombers. There were later additions of additional fuel tanks that would give it more, but the B-52 had twice the range for reasons I've mentioned. So to say it was 110 feet by 100 feet, what does that mean? That's uh, what a Vulcan looks like on the ground. And... Uh, it's pretty big for a bomber airplane, and it actually handles just like a fighter airplane. Now, I just want to point out, if, if you're on the big screen, um, the controls, uh, you, there's got no tailplane. Uh, all the controls that are on the, on the Vulcan are all on the uh, trailing edge of the aircraft. You know, the eight sets. Uh, on the Mark I version, there were uh, two sets of ailerons and two sets of uh, elevators on each side. And that's how they worked, as elevators and ailerons. And one of the designers said, you know, we can actually get these all working together. So you could actually, on the Mark II, they became called elevons, and you could work the whole lot as elevators, the whole lot as ailerons, uh, which gave it incredible maneuverability. And you can just see also um, the yellow boxes uh, just there and there. That's where the air brakes are, the top air brakes, huge air brakes, and the same underneath the, uh, underneath the wings. So I think it's probably a good time to have a little look at one taking off. And this is taken at an um, air show about uh, 20 years ago. And the commentator is a man, he really is an enthusiast, you could call him a geek, he really is enthusiastic for this aircraft, so I forgive him for superlatives, but he actually describes it uh, better than I would. 
And this represents the very best, the most imaginative, thinking out of the box virtues of British aeronautical design and engineering. Virtues that in some ways don't really exist anymore because we don't build many whole aircraft in Britain these days. This aeroplane, in all its fantastic live grace and power, are dating from the same period as those wonderful four hunters that we saw earlier. This, like them, is a unique piece of flying history. She was first drawn on a scruffy piece of paper in 1946 by the same man who designed the Lancaster and she first flew to the Vulcan only 11 years after the, the Lancaster bomber but they might be in different centuries so here she is, enjoy the fabulous, fantastic Avro Vulcan. I don't think there's a sound system that's made uh, in hi-fi that can actually replicate the sound of the Vulcan. And those of you who've heard it will know that it is quite an extraordinary sound that it makes. And, uh, and that's why I, I checked with the other two uh, crew members here. We're all wearing hearing aids. And anybody that works, uh, <laughs> works on a V-bomber station, particularly the poor ground crew who uh, were outside... Um, have that problem, so question time might be fun when your questions come in. I might give you a completely different answer to a different question that you thought you'd asked. <laughs> so let me just give you a few random facts. There's so many facts, so I thought, uh, you know, maybe this isn't uh, necessarily the right uh, slide for a professional audience, but just a, a few interesting facts about it. We used maximum power a lot of the time. You know, if you fly commercially today, you don't even take off most of the time on full power. It's uh, on a cheaper engine pressure ratio, keep the power down, save money. But on the Vulcan, we always took off um, at full power, and I'm sure my colleague on, from the Victor will say much the same about him. The temperature out the back end um, is about 700 centigrade. That's about the same as any non-reheat, non-afterburner, call it what you will, engine. No reheat on any of the V-bombers, no afterburners. Our takeoff speed was around 165 knots. That's just under 200 miles an hour. And uh, we'd uh, normally cruise sl slightly under the speed of sound at about 0.93 mark. The aircraft has gone supersonic, uh, but the pilots that did it in test uh, said it was easy to go supersonic, but it was much harder to come out of a supersonic dive, so don't do it. Uh, uh, <laughs> so so 0.93 was our maximum speed, and the landing speed a bit uh, less than uh, the takeoff speed. Uh, obviously, if you've lost a bit of weight, uh, lost a bit of fuel, uh, you can come down a bit slower, but still pretty fast, um, over 150 miles an hour. And um, one of the statistics that uh, the Green Party absolutely hates is what our fuel, <laughs> our fuel burn was. The fuel capacity was 10,000 gallons, that's 81,000 pounds. 
The consumption was approximately, now how long is a bit of string, 1,650 gallons an hour. Well, if you're flying at high altitudes, say 40,000 feet, uh, cruising, you're going to get, I don't know, let's say double that, but you're going, or half of that rather, you're going to do a lot better. But if you're at low level, uh, using a lot of power, you can actually watch the fuel gauges going around. Uh, and not only... Uh, fuel burning, you'll see in the next picture the way they used to smoke, so uh, I do apologise to the children of today about the <laughs> greenhouse warming. The Vulcans, or none of the V-bombers uh, helped. Interestingly, the air brakes on the Vulcan, there was no speed restriction as to uh, what, uh, when you could put them out. This just really helped to manoeuvre, to escape enemy aircraft. If you had a fighter on your tail, get those air brakes out and drop the aircraft and the fighter would be past you so long and gone and it would have to take half an hour to come back and find you. Uh, and the airframe itself, there was no technical limitation on how high we could take the aircraft. It was built for 64,000 feet. Uh, but the oxygen system wasn't uh, good enough at that height, so it was, we were limited to 56,000 feet, which is still pretty high, and for that we used to wear pressure jerkins. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about flying above 40,000 feet, particularly 56,000 feet. Now, if you go to depressurization, and people say, well, why might you go to depressurization? Well, of course, if you're in combat, you might you'll be pulling stressful maneuvers, and you might even have missiles coming at you. There was a strong possibility that you will depressurize, whereas Concorde, you know, unless there was a catastrophic failure, you know, it would not depressurize. Uh, so if you've got a depressurization at, say, 56,000 feet, you know, it was important to get the aircraft below 40,000 feet to where you could breathe normally and not have to pressure breathe. And we could do that in about uh, 85 seconds. You do it really quickly, and then you uh, survive quite happily. <laughs> to, to say she was manoeuvrable, as you'll see in a couple of... Uh, bearing in mind that... At, Aerobatics was strictly forbidden, but there were escape and evasions and fighter affiliation where you might get into unusual attitude and unusual recovery, and as long as nobody was watching. Uh, uh, and of course, nobody had mobile phones to film you in these days, but uh, there was some quite interesting maneuvers that could be had. Now, I just want to quickly take you through the timeline of the Vulcan. So, over 70 years ago. Isn't that amazing? That's the first prototype flew 70 years ago. That's uh, looking around the room. I'm sure there are some people in here who aren't 70 years ago. I know there's a lot of people that are 70 years, but an awful lot are, that aren't. And the RAF took its first deliveries in 1956. Uh, and the first flight of the Mark II version uh, was in 1960. What I find interesting is the short span time between the Mark I and the Mark II. And then in highlights, I've got the QRA area, and this is what I'm going to talk quite a bit about. QRA is the quick reaction alert, and this is what the aircraft were on, on standby, nuclear-armed, ready to go, acting as a deterrent, um, with a government that the enemy thought would actually use it uh, if it was necessary. You know, I think a lot of recent leaders have been wishy-washy about whether they would use the nuclear deterrent on the current submarines. But I think that during the QRA era, the leaders that we had would most certainly have used it if necessary. But at the end of the 60s, in 1969, 
the uh, deterrent role is handed to the Navy. And that's a whole topic of conversation I could have. Um, is it a better role? Is it, uh, could we have done more with the aircraft? But uh, there's not time to do that tonight. We wouldn't get home before breakfast if we discussed that. And then in the 1970s and the 80s, uh, the aircraft is, is lesser role. So it was a shame for the crews that had done QRA. You knew you had done something important and worthwhile. And then the same aeroplane with the same crew. It's just, just not the same when you're not doing the, um, the, big, the big jobs. By the time you get to 1982, um, most of the aircraft had been retired, scrapped, damaged, whatever. There's just a handful left. Uh, and the remaining aircraft were due to be withdrawn in that year. And this reminds us of what the 1960s, I'm going to talk about the QRA. This is what the 1960s area was all about. And I wonder how much of the 1960s people here remember. You know, I was a bit worried when we had the last World Cup that I might have to change that bottom picture with Bobby Moore. But I think he's going to be there on that photograph for the rest of my lifetime, and I hope I live a lot longer. And, and then an E-type Jaguar at the car. Well, every single uh, pilot, navigator dreamt of owning an E-type Jaguar, and we all dreamt of marrying a Playboy model. So that was the 1960s, uh, as far as we were concerned. A, a great time to live for those that did, or a great time to be teenagers or a 20-year-old. I was a 20-year-old. So the, the Vulcan, it's a brilliant aeroplane, but it wasn't perfect by any stretch of imagination. Tell me anything that is, even on the aircraft like today, you know, the, the Lightning Joint Strike Fighter. You know, is that perfect? No, it's not, you know, but uh, different story. The cockpit on the Vulcan was extremely cramped. It was the, the most cramped of the three uh, V-bombers. The rear crew uh, didn't have ejector seats on any of the, the two pilots in the V-force uh, bombers uh, had ejector seats, Martin Baker. Uh, the three rear crew members were not given ejector seats. Martin Baker came up with a design. I don't know about the Victor or the Valiant, but they certainly came up with a design that would have easily enabled ejector seats to be fitted. Uh, but the finance branch decided that they would rather train new air crew than provide ejector seats for them, so they weren't done. Interestingly, there were t two of the instruments, you know, these days uh, with modern navigation systems, you sometimes forget how antiquated the uh, compass systems and the altimeters uh, of those aircraft were. You know, the, air the compass systems were magnetic, the altimeters barometric, uh, with lots of inbuilt uh, inaccuracies in them. Um, quite extraordinary how then we could get the accuracy of bombing down to a measurement in yards, but there's quite an art of doing that. Um, and we used to swing the, cus the compasses to 0.01 of a degree uh, on paper. That was how it was calibrated. Um, and then the crosswind landing limitation, uh, because you might guess from that big delta wing how in a flaring position coming into land, you know, the uh, trailing edge is pretty close to the ground, so there was a 15 knot cross limit, quite um, small. There was no way you could sort of come in like uh, you know, a big Airbus A380 at about 30 degrees of bank, you know, sometimes you see, not bank of uh, drift coming in rather. Uh, but the Vulcan, you didn't see it a little bit, but um, a 15 knot uh, crosswind limit. 
So let's go aboard, shall we? Um, there, there is the entrance into the Vulcan, uh, the hatch on the underneath side. Uh, you, you go up the steps, um, and immediately inside the hatch area is a kind of a little platform. Either side of the platform, uh, you've just got electrical crates, you know, which were humming away and little lights flashing here and there. There's, there's no uh, wardrobe, there's no galley, there's no toilet or anything like that. And it is pure functional uh, equipment that helps the aircraft to work. And some of the stuff you could work on in flight if necessary. And you could do box changes as well if you were in stuff like that. But get onto that first platform and then you go up the uh, steps at the front that you can see uh, that go up to the uh, pilot seat in the front for the two, whereas the re uh, rear crew will turn round and they go up a, a little platform at the back and face backwards, three abreast facing backwards in dark. There are two little porthole lights um, for the rear cabin, which we often used to keep the blinds down anyway on those, but if you're not doing anything important, if you didn't have the radar on, you'd let the sun, sun come through. Uh, and you can just see on um, the little bubble underneath. Interesting. That was a visual bomb aimer's position. It was built in and it sort of came from the old aircraft in the, where the bombing was done by a guy that had crosshairs and all kinds of instruments in his hand to measure the target. Uh, but it was decided that, um, as this was going to be maybe a 56,000 feet um, flying, you're probably going to be above cloud anyway, so uh, there's no point. So we did all the bombing on radar. And I'll talk a little about that. So it was all blind bombing. So a look inside, and there's the uh, cockpit for the uh, two pilots. And I said it was cramped, and you can't really get much more cramped than that. Uh, between the two pilots, just there, is the fuel control panel. You say, how the hell do you get into those seats? Well, the fuel control panel is on a hinge and it lifts up uh, so the two pilots can get in and when they're in, they bring it back down and it goes into position. Uh, so you certainly don't want to fly, have a co-pilot who you don't like, or if you're a co-pilot, a captain, you know, you're pretty close to each other there. And uh, if the co-pilot does something in that, the captain can quickly hit his knuckles rather hard closely. And it's just as cramped in the back for the, uh, for the three rear crew. And, and it, all the old-fashioned instruments uh, of those days, you know, glass cockpits hadn't even been thought of, let alone designed. And I wanted to show some maneuverability, so let's, uh, let's just see, watch one in... Uh <laughs> Massive, and here it comes now, that wonderful house. 
got some more of that later. Um, just before I talk about the aircrew selection, about that Bombay, it was uh, obviously it was designed to hold this one um, nuclear weapon, uh, but it could also carry conventional weapons, as you know, because the conventional uh, thousand pounders were used in the Falklands. Uh, so you could take 21 1,000 pounders in there. And also in the Bombay, if you weren't carrying bombs, you could carry quite a lot of spare equipment. You know, we weren't a, a freighter, but we could put uh, crates in the back and put quite a lot of anything. If you're on an overseas trip, you could come back loaded with furniture from the Far East. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there, there were quite a few things that could go in there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so a little bit about uh, the aircrew selection. So you didn't just um, apply and uh, fill in a form. You actually went to a place called uh, RAF Biggin Hill that was the Offices and Aircrew Selection Centre. And it was a three-day selection process uh, to see whether you were suitable to be um, aircrew or not. And, uh, and probably about uh, one in five of those that actually go there were accepted to go to flight training, officer training school. I have to say, all the um, aircrew for pilot navigator after the war were all commissioned. In the war, a lot of pilots were sergeant pilots and very good pilots at that. Anyway, if you do get selected for uh, flying training, uh, you're going to spend uh, at least the next two years uh, doing preliminary flying training, navigation training, and all the other bits. So at least two years before you join an operational conversion unit. And the operational, operational conversion unit, the OCU, is where you learn to fly on a particular type of aircraft. It might be a maritime, like the Shackleton, or it might be something like a, a Beverly Transport, if you're back to those days. And the V-Force crews for all had um, initial security vetting for fairly obvious reasons. And the very first V-Force crews, uh, when the V-Force first came into, the commander-in-chief, bomber command, actually interviewed all the captains himself. But then as the force got bigger, obviously he couldn't do it. And, but there was still a pretty uh, careful selection on uh, the crews for the V-Force. Uh, the crew composition uh, for each of the V-Bombers was identical. And a, a captain was always the uh, first pilot, or I would say the first pilot was always the captain. On some aircraft, a navigator is often the captain, not on the V-Force. Uh, the captain would have been a very experienced pilot from other types of aircraft. Um, and then the tactical, there were two navigators, the tactical navigator, or known as the nav plotter, uh, he would have also been very experienced, um, and the aeroelectronics officer, a combination of signaler, engineer, uh, combined in one role, he would be quite experienced as well. And then the two new boys, the navigator radar, which I was, and the co-pilots would be mostly coming on our first operational tour. When you became a crew on a V-bomber, you were constituted, so that meant you always flew with the same crew. It was really important that you did. If you fly on a commercial aircraft today, the chances are more than likely, if it's a big airline, that the captain and the first officer haven't even met until half an hour before the flight. Here, we knew each other like the back of our hands. They were sort of second family. You, you were with them for two and a half years uh, with just the occasional change for various reasons, but, but not many. And the average age of those crews uh, was 34. Uh, so if you put that into the QRA timeline, uh, that means that most uh, retired QRA crews, such as myself, are now in our 80s. And I 
in my 80s, it's only just, but I'm there. So we won't be around all that much longer to tell this story, so I'm so glad that people, uh, you're here to hear the story firsthand. Now the, the main bomber bases, I said at the beginning, we needed to renew uh, the bases. So the V-bomber bases needed a 10,000 foot plus runway. Those, those were big runways. They mostly took the existing wartime uh, airfields and uh, upgraded them. Scampton, Waddington, Cottesmore, Gaydon, Barham, uh, Wittering, uh, I missed Whitton out, but Finningley. These are all in the Lincolnshire, Yorkshire type area. Um, there's a few down in, in uh, Norfolk. Um, but what was a V-bomber base? Well, first, it's not on this slide, but the first thing I should say, of course, it's a prime Soviet target. This is where the V-bombers are, so it's a number one uh, target list for uh, enemy missiles. Yeah. But each base is comparable to a small town. It's got its own uh, communication centre, its own telephone exchange, it does all the maintenance, it's got schools, it's got churches, it's got messes for all the people to live. Um, it's got its own power supply. Uh, you, you name it, it's, uh, it could exist quite happily on its own resources without tapping into the grid or anything else like that. So each of these bases um, will have three squadrons, normally have three squadrons. And um, they were always the same aircraft type. So if I say three squadrons, uh, they'll all be three Victors or three Valiant or three uh, Vulcan. And on each squadron, there'll be 11 crews. So that's uh, 55 active crews uh, members on each squadron. And then there'll be one or two other active flying staff, standards and checkers. So there's probably about 200 active uh, V-bomber qualified crew on the station, supported by about 2,500 uh, support staff. Uh, and then coming in daily, probably about another 500, even 700 uh, ancillary uh, domestic staff and things like that. But a huge, um, a huge base, particularly after the, you know, the smaller numbers of the war. So having said that these uh, V-bomber bases are uh, prime targets, sort of how do we avoid that? Well, by having a lot of dispersal units, and there's about 40 of them. These are where, in times of threat uh, or anxiety, we moved all the aircraft, not all, but uh, most of them, uh, to one or other of these dispersals. So you'd put, instead of having about six, seven main bases full, you'd be putting two or three aircraft, maybe four aircraft, at each of those bases. Northern Ireland to uh, Anglesey in Wales, down to up to Scotland, so St Morgan down in Cornwall, all over the country. So once uh, there's a need to disperse, that's where you go. And it's not just the uh, air crew with their aircraft that go there, but you also, our transport command would come in and pick up a lot of the ground staff, engineers, fire staff, um, even caterers and admin staff to build up these bases. These bases would all be active, but they'd probably be on very low maintenance. The big thing that they did have was um, uh, a, war a war connection cable to Bomber Command, and they all had that big runway that uh, I mentioned that we needed. So what was the purpose of this? Well, I said it was QRA. So quick reaction alert. And, and this, when you see 
any shot like that, you know, four aircraft, they're sitting on what we call the operational readiness platform. This is right at the side of the runway here. So if you had four aircraft in that position, uh, that meant they're at two minutes readiness and they will have a crew inside the aircraft and they will have a live nuclear weapon on board the aircraft. Now, quite clearly, when you're in a situation like that, uh, you don't want uh, other aircraft coming in on that main runway. That would be just a disaster waiting to happen. So once the aircraft are on QRA at two minutes readiness, the runway is out of action to any other aircraft uh, that's uh, coming by. So we didn't spend all our day at two minutes readiness. Um, the normal readiness state was 15 minutes. And that meant that you could taxi the aircraft to a separate parking area just a few hundred yards away. Uh, where we had a, some accommodation for the ground crew and for the air crew, which had beds and, and stuff like that. And you could actually legally go to sleep in the bed, but you kept your boots on and you kept your, most of your flying suit on. Uh, and the one thing that you never let out of your hands, uh, the co-pilot looked after it, was the key to the aircraft. The, the aircraft was locked. We didn't keep any of the stuff that was in the aircraft with us. It was once you did QRA, you put your bag with your target and everything and your flying helmet, all that was in the aircraft ready for you. So all you had to do was to get into your fast car that was waiting with the bells and the sirens and get to that aircraft. We could sometimes come up from 15 minutes to five minutes readiness. That where we didn't have to start the engine, we didn't have to go there. And you'd be kept there by the bomber controller for maybe um, 10 minutes, maybe an hour, occasionally a little bit longer, but not very long. It was just really not to see how long you could sit there, it was to see how quickly you could all radio in that you had got from your 15 minutes to your five or your two or whatever it was. So you wouldn't be on QRA unless you'd been given a target. So the target allocation was and is top secret because um, not unsurprisingly, many of the targets that we had on the V-Force were the same targets that the uh, Navy have for their submarines. And crews never discussed their target with another crew. You, you had your own specific targets, you know, primary and a secondary and maybe a third, uh, but only you knew what your targets were, you had no idea what the other targets were. And I'm told, and I'm on good authority, that not even the station commander knew what all the targets were for all the crews. If he was flying on a, flying on a crew, he would know what the target for that crew is. You were given this target, and it was up to the crew to plan how they would go in and out. In association with the target, you'd possibly have um, an initial point, and you'd certainly have a uh, no-go line, uh, which you wouldn't cross without authentication. But basically, it's going to be anything um, whose destruction is going to stop or impede the enemy aggression. So, sadly, some of it would be uh, domestic casualties as well, but most of the targets were hopefully just military, but as that earlier video said, you know, Moscow and Leningrad, you know, they are the homes for the um, military headquarters. Let me take you on a typical training sortie then, because uh, we weren't going to war, uh, so we were planning for it instead, or planning to prevent it. So a crew would get together, uh, either as the navigators or the pilots, you know, there might be a flight simulator exercise to do. Um, the, 
navigators would plan uh, synthetic targets. These were dummy targets in the UK that we would sort of plan to go. Uh, might plan different routes and various things. Um, but we'd actually meet up on the day of flying about four hours before our takeoff time and go through the last stage of planning, you know, considering the weather for the day, the aircraft uh, that's been allocated, the weight of that aircraft, fuel load and stuff like that, um, and spend about two and a half hours of that. Then we go and get changed. Um, having got changed, um, go and have a pre-flight meal, always super catering there, there really was. Uh, and then about an hour before um, takeoff, we'd board the aircraft to check it, everything out on the outside, we'd meet the ground crew, and then fly our sortie, always about five hours, as close to five hours as you can. If you kept on doing five hours, five hours, it made adding up your logbook at the end of the month a hell of a lot easier than having four hours, 46 minutes, and, and other rubbish. Yeah. And then at the end of the uh, sortie, we'd brief, uh, debrief with the ground crew. It's a really important exercise. You know, they're, they're the guys that actually own the aircraft. You know, the aircraft is actually owned by, if you like, two crew chiefs, um, usually one on airframes, one on engines, who, and then they have ground crew allocated to, and they're very proud of their aircraft, uh, and they want it to be the best one in the fleet. Um, so we say, that this isn't quite right, this isn't, needs adjusting, and they'd happily go and do it. And then we'd have our own crew brief, crew debrief amongst ourselves, usually over another meal. Uh, but by the time we said bye, see you the next day, it's probably been a pretty intensive 12-hour day from start to finish. So there we go, off. And I always think the best pilots are those who've got the same amount of landings as they have takeoffs. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's just, just see one coming into land, because this is one of the ways that you can land. So if you're braking hard, um, you're going to get uh, brake problems uh, and brake fires and things like that. It, it did happen. So uh, the brake parachute—it was a once-only use. Of course, you know, once you've uh, used it on the ground, uh, it has to be jettisoned and uh, picked up and repacked. But you can only do that when you go back into, uh, you know, that, that's it. You know, a one-off chance. So we'll see the other way. The other ways of landing are if you're using the aerodynamics, because uh, no flaps, you just put the nose high up, and you'll see that in another one. And the other one is, of course, just using the brakes. Uh, now, as I said, the aircraft were designed uh, for high-level use. Uh, to be, I probably didn't emphasize it, but the idea was to be above enemy radar and, and to avoid detection by enemy uh, fighter aircraft. Uh, and that's exactly what it was at those heights. But then, if you remember, the Americans lost an airplane, a U-2, with Gary Powers as the pilot, who was shot down, and he was shot down from about 64,000 feet, and suddenly, um, 
you know, flying around in our wagons at 56,000 feet. Well, hang on, hang on. You know, we can now be picked up by the radar and their fighters can reach us. You know, this was suddenly from being the safest place on earth to be, it suddenly became the most dangerous place on earth to be as far as the enemy was concerned. So it was necessary to switch to low level tactics. On this way, we can get below most of the radar, and fighters don't uh, like uh, maneuvering at a uh, low level as much as sort of we did. So there was a pretty good chance of actually getting through. But the task was to get lower and lower and lower. So the, the lower you went without flying into the ground, the safer you were going to be. So you'd actually go as low as you possibly could. And, and then uh, those that were really daring. Uh, and uh, are there, I can't see everybody. Are there any golfers in here? Not too many golfers. No. Uh, well, well, that's interesting because no, normally there are. And I say the golf courses were fair game for our low-level flying. Uh, and, uh, you know, schools, we avoided as much as we possibly could. Hospitals and farms with animals and was something we would try hard to avoid. But a, a golf course was fun. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, particularly because it was flat, so you weren't going to come to any harm. But uh, it used to be a, sort of a bit of uh, bravo as to you know, who got the most flying complaints. Now, if it was over a town, you'd get uh, you know, your something chopped off. But uh, if it's um, uh, a golf course complaining, the station commander would say, good lad, good lad. You know, and, uh, <laughs> Now, all, all the crews had classifications, you know, as they, when you start off, you know, coming from uh, the conversion unit to join the squadron, you know, you think you're the uh, top notch, you know, but you suddenly find that you're the, the worst uh, crew on the squadron and you're non-operational and you're no use to them until you become operational. So the first grade that you get is operational and then you get uh, combat and then you get higher, you know, the better you do with your uh, navigation and bomb scores, the higher uh, classification. Now you don't get paid any more money, you don't get promoted, but you do get a few of the perks and some of the, most of the perks were to do with um, where you actually flew and which aircraft you get and when you did it. The other thing that was important to get the classification was target identification. Most of these targets are going to be some that you might not see. If it's a hangar, that's going to show up beautifully on, um, your, on your radar, which is what we're using for the uh, target identification. But if it's a, you know, something underground, under a field or something, you won't um, be able to see it apart from a field. But uh, as long as you know where it is, you can measure uh, accurately in yards how far you know, let's say a, a coastal point is from that target and then put those offsets numbers into the computer uh, or the bombing system and then you'd pretend that you were flying to the thing that you can see whereas in point of fact you're, the aircraft is flying itself to the thing that it can't see. Pretty, pretty clever. And then astro-navigation. So why astro-navigation? Isn't that going backwards? Well, yeah, surprising how accurate astro-navigation can be. Um, and the aircraft had to be self-sufficient because if this is in time of war or uh, combat, the strong likelihood is that all the navigation aids on the ground are going to be compromised or unusable. Uh, so uh, using your own um, onboard equipment, this was going to be accurate enough to get you a, around the world if you happen to be abroad, and secondly, getting close enough to the target to do your job. And as I said, the higher the classification, uh, the 
higher the perks that you get. Well, these weren't necessarily the perks, but Lone Rangers, and we used to call them jollies, very aptly named, because we used to have a lot of fun on these. And the regular one that was on everybody's list, it was probably the first one you did, and the one you did most of, was to the Canadian Air Force Bay in Goose Bay in Labrador. I was looking at the temperature there the other week. It was about minus 32 most days. It used to get pretty damn cold there. But apart from that, it was a great place to be, because you really could do your low-level flying, because um, it was just you know, lakes, forests, uh, hardly any uh, people. In the summer, you might get some somebody doing some salmon fishing, but there was, you know, you're going to get no complaints, that's for sure, over there. And then another fun base uh, regularly was uh, the Australian Air Force Base at Butterworth in Malaysia. This was home to American F-111 fighters. Um, we used to do fighter affiliation where they used to come and uh, try and catch us and, uh, and we'd try and avoid them. And sometimes they won, sometimes they didn't, 50-50 uh, perhaps. Uh, and there were also quite a few decent bombing ranges where you could actually go and drop some uh, live practice bombs on the bombing ranges and measure your scores accurately uh, with a splash in the water rather than the, um, the radar synthetic. Now, a lot of the ranges, uh, some of them had a lot more icing on the cake than the others. And um, top the, uh, the top four are the main bases uh, that in America, and I'm using the name of the American base, and uh, which doesn't probably mean an awful lot to you, but if I then translate those, uh, offered is the SAC headquarters at Omaha, Nebraska. You get the best steak in the world there, the best entertainment there. McAllen is San Francisco, San Francisco, a great place. Hickam is Honolulu. Uh, Nellis is Las Vegas. So you can see these are not just uh, military airfield. These are, these are places where you go to have a bit of fun. And then going halfway down the list, another one, Gan, um, might not be familiar to you, but the Gan is one of the Maldive Islands in the Indian Ocean. So there's some lovely places there. Um, and that brings me to a story about uh, four days in the winter of 1968. And, uh, I can remember, there's quite a few things I don't remember, but uh, this I do remember, I, think. I don't know why. It was damn cold, I do remember that, but um, we were just coming up to the end of our classification period, and I, I mentioned how important it was, you know. All our scores, all our numbers were good enough to get an upgraded classification but we just needed to do one more sortie. We didn't have enough sorties, so even if we had made a complete mess of the sortie, uh, the chances are we would have still actually qualified by having done enough and got enough good scores on the previous. So it was important, because uh, we happened to know what the reward was going to be, and we would be allocated the trip to Hawaii. So uh, two, two of the crew had been there. Uh, I was one of the newer people, and I hadn't, so I was determined that uh, we were going to classify on this. So we, we prepared really hard for it. And we had two days left in which uh, we could qualify, uh, which was plenty of time. So we did the planning perfectly. We even had a chat with our friends in engineering to make certain that we got a really good aircraft allocated. Um, we even had a, bought the ops officer a few beers and said, give us a decent takeoff time, you know. So we got 1,400, which is great, because that means you crew in at uh, 10. You know, if you've got an 8 o'clock in the morning slot, you know, that's getting up at uh, 3.30 in the morning, and who wants to do that? So this was everything that we wanted uh, was in our, in our favour. So 
had a nice early night. Uh, the other guys went home. I was living in the mess, went to bed early and um, set the alarm for just before 10 and was thinking about Hawaii and it was time to go from my dream. <laughs> the fire alarm to stay where you are but uh, uh, th this is the uh, the dispersal exercise and so this is is it that time in the morning most people are going to be woken up it was actually 3 30 in the morning I can remember that looked at the clock I thought, what the hell is that going on it's not time to get up with pitch black uh, but 3 30 or more and those sirens would continue to blare away for about 10 minutes with the uh, tannoy going you know all personnel report to duty all personnel and that wasn't just the air crew you know if you'd landed a few hours before you went back to operations you know if you well, back on leave if you were if you were on the base you went to your place of work whether you were a cook whether you were an admin whether you were an engineer you went to work uh, taking with you if you were aircrew you'd take your little overnight bag which is already packed always got it beside my bed you know toothbrush change of uh, clothing uh, run across the road to the operations block and uh, inside there you know as soon as a complete crew arrived because they were living in different parts of the world your name went up on the board crews 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 and then on the other side of that uh, engineers would bring up all the aircraft from maintenance bring make certain that they were all uh, coming if they were in maintenance if it was minor maintenance maintenance was cancelled uh, the aircraft were handed over as operational with a fault that was allowable to be carried and as soon as you uh, crew had arrived on an aircraft uh, you'd be told which of your dispersal base was and we were about the seventh one off on that day and uh, off to Macrahanish on the west coast of Scotland um, on our way and off we went and I don't think anybody said anything you know but uh, we knew as we went all of us that this was the end of our trip to Hawaii because these exercises uh, lasted for about four or five days so it meant that we wouldn't be able to complete that final task so we were not the happiest of crew uh, going out now I'm going to just very no I'm not going to do the next slide actually because it yes I will because we've got a Victor guy here so I have to sorry <laughs> uh, this is the quick reaction alert at uh, uh, Wittering, as you'll see, and those were the victors uh, that had the blue steel missiles. So it's uh, give me a chance to get my breath back, and uh, you can. They call it QRA, Quick Reaction Alert. Some V bombers on all bomber command stations always stand ready for instant takeoff. Victor twos at Wittering, for example, carry blue steel supersonic guided missiles. Air crews are on duty every day and night of the year. The captain collects his go bag, containing all the information needed to go into action should an emergency arise. And behind closed doors, they get to work on their flight plan. 
steel, British-built, has a nuclear warhead. It can be released a long way from its target, launched while the bomber is outside enemy defences. It's an impressive weapon, a triumph of British science and know-how. In the Blue Steel trainer room, a crew practices the complex release procedures for the Blue Steel missile. Frequently without warning, QRA crews are alerted to keep them on their toes. Attention, attention. For wittering alert crews only. Practice readiness 05. Practice readiness 05. This is a practice alert. It could be changed to the real thing at any time. From the moment the aircraft door closes, the bomber is ready to go should the order be given. Well, one of the things that you might have noticed there, that um, they were sitting in the Blue Tree Old trainer room with um, a bag, the go bag. That wouldn't be the case, you know, it was obviously filmed for Pathé and um, that bag would be in the aircraft. You don't want to find you've got into the aircraft and left the bag somewhere, so... <coughs> Uh, I've got a very quick sort of story here. It's um, after a four-week detachment. I mentioned we went to Butterworth in Malaysia, and uh, when you've done four or five weeks there, the uh, the married crew members are pretty keen to get back, and uh, so we're looking forward to coming back. And the way we would come back, we'd normally go on these detachments about eight aircraft, and um, with eleven crews. So not everybody got to fly the aircraft back, but we were flying one back. And uh, four aircraft go the first day, and four go the second day, and we were on the first day of the second aircraft. And uh, again, using the, because uh, uh, again, you know, it's where about roughly there is where Penang or uh, Butterworth is, and our first stop is going to be just there. That's uh, Gan, and then we're going up to Bahrain. Uh, so off we go. Um, is second in the stream of four aircraft, ten minutes behind the first aircraft. And as you can see you know, from the map, there's not an awful lot to do between uh, Butterworth and Gan. So the co-pilot sort of was reading a book uh, that I was playing chess with the other navigator because we sit side by side. Um, you know, once you've taken off and got to altitude, you know, when you take off, you pay really careful attention. And once you're cruising, you just want to make certain that your oxygen system's working um, and that there's not a lot you can do and there's not a lot that's going to go wrong. Not a lot going to go wrong. About an hour out from uh, Gan, we had a catastrophic uh, engine failure which on the starboard side, which took out, there was no reason at all, it wasn't even on full power. But on a Vulcan, the way the engines were, if, if one went out on one side, it almost certainly took its friendly side by side. So one and two would go, or three and four, the side by side. Anyway, the fire bell went and the fire drill was done and it didn't really matter because um, as long as the fire uh, lights went out, which they did, and um, 
the airplane quite happily flew, flies on two engines. So we, went, well, we made a pan corp, which was just minor than uh, a mayday. The aircraft ahead asked what the trouble was. We said he turned around to come back and uh, shepherd us because uh, we lose our electrical supply, a lot of our electrical supply anyway. And the other thing that we were worried about was perhaps, you know, even though the fire uh, engine lights had gone out, uh, fire warning lights for the engines had gone, there could have been a, a fire in the wing. So we wanted to make certain that there was no fire continuing. Um, there wasn't, we landed. And then, the, you know, we had to wait for a spare engines to come out. Then there was a, a mix up with the uh, transport system. They were supposed to get the engines to you within 24 hours, but somebody changed the aircraft, the engines at uh, Bahrain onto a different aircraft, and they went to Butterworth instead of to Gan. And of course, who gets the blame for this? Ask poor the crew of this aircraft, you know, the stage commander saying, what are you doing, you know? When he'd been didn't have mobile phones, so he'd been trying to get through on the phone and found that we were water skiing, enjoying ourselves or something. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for the end. Well, there was nothing else we could do, but uh, so, and, and instead of taking about three days to get fixed, it took about uh, eight days to get fixed. And uh, when we said, yeah, the engines are done, um, Officer said, well, stage commander again was, you know, really, said, you get yourselves bloody back without any more mus mucking around, so we go and make our way back. Uh, things don't always happen in ones, they happen in twos and threes. Uh, the captain said to the co-pilot, you, you can do the landing at uh, Bahrain. No reason at all, he was a very good co-pilot. Um, he was almost ready for his captain's course, so, you know, he was thrilled that he was going to actually land the aircraft manually at Bahrain. Uh, it was given the exact landing speed. He did the most absolutely superb landing, probably the best landing I'd done all year. You know, hit the uh, PNC is right on the spot, right on the speed, and he called for the uh, brake parachute to uh, stream. Uh, the captain, who was not flying because it was the co-pilot, selected the stream for the parachute. And we... Uh, all sort of count, you know, when the parachutes go, because you feel it, and uh, so land, stream, two, three, four, and it's about now you should ex feel it, five, six. Captain says, I've got control. And Copa said, what's happened? He said, we haven't streamed. He said, selected, and they're sort of talking like that. We'll have to get off again, so we'll go down to the end of the runway, full power now, and we'll rotate just as we get to the end of the runway. And exactly what happened. And just as we rotated, the parachute decided it would like to come out. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, luckily, it had a certain breaking point. I forget what the exact number is, but it pulled a fair bit of the back of the uh, parachute housing out. It tore to shreds, and we were left with a few cables coming out of the back. But the, uh, the frightening thing about it was the air traffic controller uh, had only been there for about uh, six months, had actually been one of our controllers at uh, Waddington, so she knew that something was wrong. Um, and it, as we rotated, suddenly she saw the chute coming out, and that actually kept us right over the sand, and all there was was this massive sand cloud uh, which we thought we'd actually crashed into. And we heard on the radio, the crash, crash, Vulcan and the locator. And I can remember just sitting in the back of the aircraft thinking, oh, sugar, when's this going to hurt? <laughs> and, and you know, you say, when you think you're going to die, you, your life flashes in front of you. And, well, it's amazing how much of your life does flash in you. 
before you. And, um, but suddenly, you know, hang on, we're actually airborne, we're still flying. And uh, so we sort of talked about what had gone wrong. And um, not a big problem, we're now in the air, the, the airplane is flying quite well. And uh, we just don't have a brake parachute to help us stop. Uh, we didn't want to burn off any more fuel uh, because we were not certain how much damage there was on the airplane. So it was to do a quick emergency landing and just hope that the brakes, tyres and everything held. Well, they nearly did, but we lost a few tyres. We had a brake fur, a hydraulic fur. And it's, once again, we are flavour of the month, not... Uh, um, you know, and as if it was as if it was our fault. Now, when you fly, you practice for every single eventuality and every failure. But this was a failure that had never happened. It wasn't written. So, um, but we still got the blame for it. Um, and the scramble that never came. Uh, and thank goodness it didn't, because it would have meant that we'd failed. Um, and what we had been uh, planning for would have been worthless. And it would be a one-way ticket, you know, it would be Armageddon for sure. Uh, we wouldn't be coming back, there wouldn't be a base to come back to. But would we have uh, taken the order? Uh, there's no doubt about it, absolutely. We would have um, not let the other side get away with what they were doing, so we would have definitely gone. And if we had gone, it would be something like this. We'd be setting off over the North Sea to the target entry points, uh, be radio silence, all the uh, identification lights, navigation lights would be off day or night, the cabin would be blacked out, and we would come up to the authentication line that uh, I'd mentioned. And only, and only if you get the correct authentication, which is in that go bag, uh, verified by at least two members of the crew, probably we would all verify it, but it had to be verified by two, will that mission continue once that's... Uh, it's not the other way around, you know, you have to have a authentication to continue, and then you do continue. And then, once you've had that single authentication, nothing, nothing, uh, enables you to be recalled. Even if you hear radios calls, other aircraft calling, mistake, mistake, even if you heard your members of the royal family say, for God's sake, it's a mistake, we would still continue. It was something that we were told that they might try, um, having had the authentication, to falsely uh, recall you from the other side, so we would continue. And as you come into the hostile territory, this is now where we get down to the ultra-low level. Um, and this time, you know, the eye patches, which you've probably heard about, will actually go on one eye patch on each eye for the pilots. There's going to be other nuclear explosions for sure, so at least this enables you not to be blinded by the first nuclear flash. Electronic countermeasures are going to be working flat out. Um, evasive action and hopefully we'll get through probably we reckon a 50-50 chance uh, of getting through to the target. Once it's over we can make the decision as to where we want to go. You know, home's not an option. Two reasons, there wouldn't be the fuel to go home and there wouldn't be a home to go to. So the really two places that were only talked about depending on where your target was. You know. Finland was top of my wish list for uh, retirement and the, for the others you know, it was Mongolia. So, so I think I had the better choice but uh, it would have depended on the target. Home's not an option. And this is important. You know, nuclear armed 
V-bombers were never scrambled in anger. Uh, as Ron Seals say on the tin, you know, does exactly what it says, proof that these deadly, arguably beautiful machines did exactly what they were intended to, to prevent a war. And they did that. Uh, and then we come out to July 1982, when virtually everybody uh, was finished, as mentioned, uh, the squadrons were due for disbandment. And then we had um, the Falklands, and Mrs. Thatcher was not going to tolerate that, but you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to spend another hour talking about the Falklands War, so, but uh, that uh, is a very, very interesting story, and if you haven't read the book, six or seven, it's worth reading. It's an incredible uh, story. Uh, and people say it did, just did a little bit of damage. It did just do a little bit of damage, but um, it was enough to stop the Argentines using it to attack the task force coming by sea. And that was the whole purpose of it, to prevent them getting their fighters and bombers there. So is there a legacy for the V-bomber force? Well, I don't think there is. You know, the government top brass failed to acknowledge the 10-year contribution of keeping the sovereignty uh, safe. And the RAF, I think, rather disgracefully, made no attempt to preserve a single airworthy V-bomber. Not one. Uh, the one that was last flying uh, was actually sold off to a private enterprise group by Dr. Robert Fleming. Uh, it was put on the civilian register uh, and it flew displays for a few years and thrilled loads of people. Um, so the, no, no thanks for anything. It, it just ended like that. But I'm not surprised. I'm really not surprised because do you remember how little the uh, World War II uh, bomber command crews uh, were ignored. Churchill ignored um, Bomber Harris and the bomber crews, never mentioned the uh, contribution. It took 67 years for that memorial to be built in Hyde Park to the bomber command crews. And this is the final video which just brings together all we've been talking about. And it shows that it thanks to the bomber command crews in World War II who flew before us on the vehicles. So this is who I am And this is all I know And I must just Say
We, we, we certainly had an easy life compared to the, uh, the guys in, uh, in the Second World War. Uh, I'm really glad that I served in the V-Force. It's something that, uh, one of the proudest uh, of my achievements, I think, and uh, I think it did good. Uh, so I've overrun, I always do, because that's because I'm so enthusiastic. And, uh, but I'm, quite, I'm in no rush to leave, so if anybody wants to stay behind and ask questions, personal or otherwise, I'll be more than happy to. And, and don't forget, now I am a little bit going in that side, so if you've got a question, it's got to be nice and loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have a go between. Uh, so b big hand for, uh, for our speaker this evening. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. That was, yeah, that was, that was absolutely marvellous, Andy. Um, have we any questions? We've got a question here in the front row, conveniently. Thank you very much. Brilliant talk. Really nice to uh, hear the, sort of the inside story. Uh, I believe you were involved in war games with the Americans. Is it true that the V-Force went in and bombed the White yes, House? Tw twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, the... Um, they didn't like it either. We came in over the uh, Canadian border and uh, attacked them that way. Um, so they were very embarrassed by it. And, they, and particularly after we did it once, and they said, you'll never do it again. And two years later, we did. <laughs> you, you, you can Google it. It's actually there. It's, uh, it had a lot of this stuff. It's, it's amazing what you can find, actually. You know, and I have taken a few of those videos from YouTube, and, uh, but some of the other pictures are old celluloid, and I've tried to upgrade them a bit. But you know, you're looking at stuff that's 70 years old. You know, so. Hi, guy. Hmm. So just hold on, Andy. We'll just do that. Sorry, mm. I beg your pardon. I need to stay here. Right. <laughs> Shout loud. So, is it an urban myth, or is it true that uh, they invited air marshals from the Russian Air Force to la to line the runway at one of the East Anglian bases and demonstrated the Vulcan and the Lightning as deterrents directly to the Russian top brass, or is that a sort of uh, a myth? Have you heard that story? Did you hear it? I don't know that one. You don't heard that one? Okay, well, no. put, put that one down uh, as a myth then. Let, let me look, look that up for you, yeah. Um. Any other questions, Gareth? Uh, obviously, you uh, concentrated on the Vulcan, which I'm was sorry, your own experience. I did, yep. <laughs> I, just very briefly, can you tell us something about what was the advantages and disadvantages of the three aircraft? The, the disadvantages of which aircraft? The, the, of, of the three. The whole, well, well, the big problem about the Valiant, which uh, I'm sure most of you here know, it did have a fatigue problem in the wings bar. Um, it was okay for high level, and that's what it was designed for. But uh, it was, even the fatigue was showing, even with high level flying, as I understand it. Could they have modified it? I think the answer is yes, but they decided not to uh, on a financial basis. But I'm pretty certain that Vickers had a plausible team that would have um, 
made it usable. And if they had done, that would have helped the development of the next civil airliner. That if you look on some you know, aviation sites, they were building an airline that looked a little bit like an enlarged Valiant. Uh, it never happened. I forget what it was called, but it was a, a Vickers something or other. Uh, so that was why it was taken out of service far too soon. And people that I've met who actually flew it say it was a beautiful aeroplane to fly. Um, it was more conventional to the others. Uh, the Victor had no problems at all. It, said it, it just wasn't um, suitable for low-level flying. But it was a, did a great job high-level, great job with the blue steel missile, and a great job as a tanker as it became. I was, I was going to say a lot of them were converted to tankers. Are, are any of them still, still they're now retired? I, I think they? they're now, even the Victors have now retired. The Victors continued a little bit later than the, uh, the Vulcan. Um, and the tankers that we now have are this, uh, the Airbus A380, the Voyager. Uh, I went flying on that a couple of years ago with the RAF, and uh, it's, it's amazing. You know, you think Victors had to refuel, Victors had to refuel, Victors to refuel a Vulcan, whereas the Voyager, we uh, went up on a NATO exercise, and uh, this one single uh, Voyager, uh, I get refueled about 40 typhoons from all the other NATO countries, you know, the one after the other, they were just coming in either side. They can actually take three on, but they tend to use not the centre when they use the wing ones and uh, does, a great, does a great job. And it's so far ahead of the Americans. You know, we do our tanking here rather differently to the um, Americans. We get the uh, pilots to fly their probe into the bucket. You know, the Americans have this boom that comes out of the back of the aircraft where the boom operator lowers the um, boom into a hole on the roof of the receiving aircraft. You know, now, they are starting to use uh, drugs for the, uh, some of the Americans because things like, you know, he uh, helicopters, you know, you can't do it the other way. <laughs> you're, you're, all, you're all awake. <laughs> okay, any other questions? Oh, got a couple down here. Can you, can you hear them okay, Andy? We'll, we'll give yep. it a go. Why did the Vulcan have that black patch underneath the nose? So, so say that a bit, yeah. Why, why did the Vulcan have a black patch underneath the nose? Oh, it was the radar, the bulkhead. The, 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 the big black uh, dome. No, no, just a, just a painted the, ju 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 Just a painted patch, apparently. Under the nose. Under the nose. Say it again. It's a painted patch under the nose. Yeah, the, it's, it's, that's the, uh, the radar dome in the black uh, area. There's a picture that's... Uh, I don't know how to quickly get back, but I think that, um, yeah, the, uh, in fact, most of the aircraft have, uh, if you look at most of the aircraft today, they still have blackets um, we're, we're behind the radar. So, um, you talked about the change from high altitude to low altitude because yeah. of the U-2. How quickly did that happen? And how the hell do you work out how to fly a V-bomber low for the first time? <laughs> um, qu qu quite alarming, because I don't think anybody had 
thought that would happen. But uh, eventually, um, not immediately, but eventually we got terrain following radar, which helped. But uh, the, the way we learnt was you went to places like Goose Bay, uh, where you'd start off, and a new crew going to low level, you would start at 1,000 foot. You know, that's not uh, low enough, so you then go down to you know, 500 feet, and that's not low enough, but you, know, you need practice at those uh, altitudes, and then you go down to about 250 feet, and that's really about as in a Vulcan as uh, as low as you want. You know, if, if if you're being naughty and daring and breaking the rules, you know you will go down lower. But 250 was technically the legal uh, l limit. But you only went down there with you know once the crew were experienced until until they had the experience. And you know it was very uncomfortable flying. There's no doubt about it. You know you had to really strap in hard and put everything. You couldn't leave anything loose in the cabin. Uh, we would never take crew chiefs or uh, people in the jump seats uh, in low level. It was just too uncomfortable. Uh, but you know practice, practice, practice. But the and the terrain following radar certainly helped. Um, your planning, and the other thing was just to, to plan, 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 to know what was coming up around the next corner. The low flying in the UK, you can have various low flying areas that the, are designated by air traffic. Uh, often the military flying training areas for, um, you can have aircraft going in all kinds of directions from flying schools. But there were low level routes around the country that uh, would go in, in one direction um, and the aircraft we were supposed to keep about 10 minutes ahead, so you kept your timing up. So you got to know those routes pretty well, and that's why we'd go abroad and pick up um, other uh, places that you didn't know. And you know, if you didn't know it, uh, but in, in time of war, I guess we would have gone down to probably 100 feet. Um, so, Andy, thank, thank you very much. I think we'll, we'll call it a day there. We'll have a little gift here for you. Um, it's, a, it's a genuine uh, turbine blade from uh, the engine in uh, the Brooklyn's Concorde, which is just parked just, just, just over here. I thought it was going to say the one that blew up over the Indian Ocean. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go. So, oh, well, thank you. Th th thank you very much. No, uh, another yeah. round for, for Andy, please. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, so thank, thank you. Thank you for being such an incredibly good audience. You know, it's uh, really nice to see people that want to hear the story, and I'm really grateful for you coming and uh, listening to it. Yeah. Well, well, as I said at the start, you're a record breaker, Andy. You're, you're the biggest audience we've ever had. So, uh, yeah, a huge, yeah. huge appetite. <laughs> yeah.